Now take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 this morning, we are going to um, um, work through this passage here in this chapter, and then for the next four weeks, we're going to take a little hiatus from the Gospel of Luke. We're now into the Christmas season. I know some of you have had your Christmas tree up for a couple of weeks. It's not officially Christmas season until after Thanksgiving. Some of you are like before Halloween trying to put Christmas stuff up. There's just something wrong with you. And so, um, you know, some counsel that needs to be in, taking place in your life if that's the case. But um, we still love you. It is officially Christmas season now. And so I'm going to do a four-part series uh, on Christmas or on Christ and, and just looking at this idea of, of Christ coming and, and pictures of that that we see in the Old Testament and it's... Um, has continued and, and fully seen, displayed in Jesus Christ as we see it in the New Testament. Uh, so I'm excited about that. This year, Christmas is on a Sunday, so we will have a Christmas Eve service uh, at 4.30, and then we will have a morning service on Christmas Day at 10.30. Uh, both of those will be about a 45-minute service, and so they're not the same services. Christmas Eve is just our typical traditional type of Christmas Eve service, and then we're going to have a Sunday morning or Christmas Day type of service. It will be a little bit abbreviated, shorter music, shorter message, just in time for you to get up early, have Christmas presents with kids or grandkids, come to church for a little bit, and then go and have lunch with family. Get to grandma's house, whatever you need to do uh, by noon. That's the plan there, and so hope you will put that on your calendar and join us for those two days. Luke chapter 8, I want to speak to the subject this morning simply of change, because that's what we're going to see in this text, is a man who is changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in 2011, in fact, February of 2011, a pastor friend of mine, this is when I was down in Alabama years ago, joined a sister church in our area uh, on a short-term mission trip to the nation of Uganda. Uh, we had recently been introduced to a uh, large, influential Pentecostal church there in the western portion of the country, and so we went over with this sister church, uh, sort of on a vision trip, though we were doing work, but we went over there to get acquainted with the church, the work they were doing, so that we could consider whether or not to partner with them in that work. And, and so uh, 2015, I led a team, uh, some of us from here, we went back over there, I've been there a number of times, and, and so uh, some of you, as I say this, you're, you're going to maybe think of some of the scenes that, that I'll be mention, maybe mentioning. But one on the Sunday during that trip, one of those days, the Sunday during that trip, we uh, arrived at Daystar Cathedral. That's the, the church that we were partnering with. It's a large church there in Mbarara. And uh, we went there for their first service. And then me and, and the other pastor that I was a friend of mine, we were going off to other churches, sister churches, uh, maybe in the city or I was just outside this city in another area. We were going there to preach, and so we arrived at Desert Cathedral. We're being escorted by the assistant pastor around the backside of the facility to the senior pastor's office, and, and as we're walking along, the assistant pastor's uh, his name is Vincent, and, uh, and I saw some guy up on the hillside that looked to be chained to a tree. And uh, I've not seen that before in churches in America, and so it kind of piqued my curiosity. And so I said, hey, uh, Pastor Vincent, um, what's going on with that guy? He looks like he's chained to a tree. And he just gave me a very simple, uh, clear statement. He's demon-possessed. And so I kind of went, all right, sounds good to me. Uh, kind of shrugged my shoulders, gave him an okay. I, I had serious doubts about it. Uh, I, I knew the stories of Mark 5, Luke 8, things that we're going to be looking at this morning. I, I knew that if that it was possible if this man was or is demon-possessed at that moment, that the, the chains aren't going to hold him. He can snap those things in two, like the guy that we're going to look at this morning. Um, also, as, a, as an American pastor, I didn't have a lot of personal experience with demon possession. I've uh, been skeptical about uh, whether or not someone in the church was demon possessed, but I never came out and said, clearly this man or woman is. Admittedly, dismissive of the entire idea. Well, 
I left. The other pastor that I was traveling with left. And after the first service, we went to the other churches, had lunch. So that took several hours. And we get back to the church. And um, while I was gone, while we were gone, what happened was the wife of the chairman of deacons of the church we were traveling with while we were gone, out of Christian love, out of gospel intentions, went up on the hillside and tried to benevolently love this man. She wanted to pray for him, wanted to pray over him, and she did that. In fact, she laid her hands on him and prayed for him. I don't remember exactly what all happened in that moment, but she soon began, soon began to feel in her body a noticeable change. Her condition worsened even as they traveled home. It became more mental than it was physical. In fact, for about three months after arriving back in Alabama, this wife of the chairman of deacons underwent pretty much what you would call a mental breakdown. And so initially, I didn't believe the chain man was a demon-possessed man, but after all of that happened to my Christian sister, uh, there was no doubt in my mind that it was true. And so as I reflect on this incident, I wonder why we today are hesitant to accept demonic activity. Uh, do we not understand what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of the darkness, that there is an evil out there and an evil one that is warring against us, that, that is influencing us individually and our culture? Do we not know the stories of the Bible where demons and Satan himself are engaged against humanity and against the Lord and his angels? Malgram Muggeridge spoke to this issue many years ago, and he said this, and I quote. He says, I have found the devil easier to believe in than God. For one thing, alas, I've had more to do with him. It seems to me quite extraordinary that anyone should have failed to notice, especially during the last half century, he wrote this in the 20th century, a diabolic presence in the world, pulling downwards as gravity does instead of pressing upwards as trees and plants do when they reach resolutely after the light. I wonder, do we sense the diabolic presence in our world today that is constantly working to pull everything down, constantly working to destroy what the Lord would work to do and want to do in the lives of people? I believe if our eyes are open, we can see it everywhere. I think we've seen it in the news even over the last few weeks. For instance, let me give you four examples. November 13th, four University of Idaho students were found dead from stab wounds in the house where they were sleeping. On the same day, three University of Virginia football players were killed. Two other students were injured as a gunman on a field trip opened fire on the bus they were traveling in. November 19th, five people were killed. Seventeen others were wounded as a gunman who identified as a non-binary individual opened fire in an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. And then just on November 22nd, a Walmart employee shot and killed five people, wounding three others at a Walmart just down the road in Chesapeake. What would lead someone to commit such a horrific atrocity as this? I would say it's demonic activity on some level. You see, one thing we need to reclaim in our sophisticated Western society is the belief in evil. That there is an evil out there that is seeking to influence every single one of us. And the evil we experience all around us, that evil is championed by one individual, one evil one, who lords over many demonic spirits and an entire system of sin. How else should we explain the mass killings that are prevalent in not just our culture, but all around the world? This is not an American problem. This is a human problem. How else is, should we explain the sex trafficking we see, the drug addiction that we see, and all of the other evils in our culture and the cultures of this planet? It's fueled by the demonic. And so while this is true and it's terrifying, all is not lost. You see, we shouldn't be fearful of these atrocities and these horrific things that are happening. We shouldn't be fearful over that because all is not lost. There is a God who has power over the demonic, over the evil that is in this world. You see, the Lord Jesus is sovereign over all things, and he's sovereign over everyone. He has authorities. We're going to see in this text, over the demons of hell. He's the one who can and does break the hold of the demonic on people. 
When a person meets Jesus, everything changes. Did you hear what I just said? When a person meets Jesus Christ, everything changes. That's on full display in this text. And so I want us to see here this morning that no matter how immersed in sin you may be today, an encounter with Jesus Christ will absolutely change your life. Luke chapter 8, let's begin reading in verse 26. Luke tells us that they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. It was kept, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. And many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. We were just at the site where many people believe this actually took place just a few months ago. It's an incredible thing to stand there and, and to visualize this passage of Scripture and what have, would have happened nearly 2,000 years ago as 2,000 pigs or more rushed into the Sea of Galilee. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know, the story of the garrison demoniac affirms the biblical reality of Satan and his demonic host. But before we get all caught up in that, it does not call us to be fascinated with the demonic. There, there's, a, there's a tendency, there's a temptation there that when we begin to swap stories of, of demonic things that we get all kind of, uh, uh, well, our skin begin to, kind of begins to crawl, the hair kind of stands up on its end, and, and we like that kind of weird, wooey feeling. It's almost like you're watching a horror movie, but it's, it's kind of intriguing in that. And if we're not careful, we can be drawn into this fascination of the demonic rather than understanding what we need to see in this passage, and that is Jesus is Lord even over the evil one. So this passage affirms the reality of Satan and his demonic host. And we learn something of Satan's purpose and we learn something of his strategy in these verses. More importantly though, we see Jesus' power over Satan and his ability to heal what evil has destroyed. I want you to catch that this morning. I think maybe it's easy, easier, let's say it that way, for us to understand Jesus is Lord over the demonic, right? But maybe we will forget that Jesus will and can and wants to heal what sin is destroyed. He wants to restore that in our lives. And so let's just kind of give you a little context and, and help you understand what Luke is laying out for us here. After this dreadful but hopeful night on the Sea of Galilee, remember what we were looking at last week. Jesus went to his disciples and says, let's cross to the other side. Let's get in these boats. Mark tells us there's multiple boats. And they cross over. And in the middle of this lake, a storm comes upon them. They cry out for help. They think they're going to die. That's a traumatic moment. The next morning, they arrive on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the area known as the Gerasene, Gerasene area. And so after this dreadful night, 
They now are on the other side, which is an area populated largely by Gentiles, though there is there are some Jews who live there, but the Jews on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee are not liked by the Jews on the western Sea of Galilee because those on the eastern side have syncretized their religion with the Gentile beliefs and systems on that area of the Sea of Galilee. And so they see them as unclean. These are unclean Jews living amongst unclean people. They have pigs that personify that. You've also got this demon-possessed Man, And so when Jesus steps out of the boat, this demon-possessed man immediately meets him in verse 27. Luke describes the man as being possessed by not just one demon, he says many demons. He also tells us that he's unclothed and he's living among the tombs. That tells us that he's isolated and he is alone. You can imagine what this man looked like. He was a scary sight to behold. He, he was a mass of bleeding, lacerations, scabs, infections, and scars. He would cut himself, other gospels tell us. He would throw the demon to throw him into fires. He was a wild, naked, frazzled, and ill man. Consequently, everyone who was against him and any child that saw him fled for the hills. That's who this man was. That's what he looked like. That's how people perceived him. The man was clearly under the control of this unclean spirit. When you think about that, people who are under the control of demons typically descend into filthy living. They, they descend into a, a state of filthy living both physically and morally. That that's becomes their lifestyle. And so for this reason, should we not open our eyes to what lies behind in our day, in our culture today, the increased substance abuse should we not open our eyes to the rampant growth in pornography and lewdness and the culture of death that's plaguing our own society today and see it not as just a, a typical movement amongst humans, but see it as the demonic warring against God's creation? There's something more at play here than just flippant, non dangerous, non-threatening type of human sin. No, there's something of hell that is behind all of this then and now. And so this demon-possessed man cried out, and he falls down before Jesus. And look what he says. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Have you come here to torment me? I beg you not to do that. That's what this demon, this demon-possessed man, says to Jesus. So this confession and this plea reveal how the demonic world rightly sees Jesus. Today in our world, there's a lot of debate about who Jesus is. Is he Lord? Is he God? Was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Was he a religious nut job that kind of just led a movement back then? But I want you to know today that the demons of hell have no doubt who Jesus is. This demon-possessed man comes and says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. See, the demons were not seeking to worship Jesus here, but instead they are acknowledging his lordship and, and in essence asking this, what is there between us? Can, can you leave us alone? There's a recognition of the authority of Jesus Christ. There's a fear that he's going to judge them before the appointed time. They know, and they knew then, and they know now, that there is a judgment coming for them. And yet they're still not repenting of that sin. They're still not repenting of that rebellion against God. And so as this legion of demons stands before the Lord Jesus, they're saying, is judgment coming now? It seems premature. Don't judge us now. Acknowledgement of lordship. In the general sense. And Jesus asked the man's name. And he said legion. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers. 120 horsemen. And then the technical personnel that went along with that. Archant Hughes tells us that to the Jewish mind. Legion would have brought an image of great numbers. Efficient organization. And relentless strength. And so right here what we see in the text. Is you've got a legion uh, Many, many, many demons, a host of demons peering out through the eyes of this man at the Lord Jesus. And from a human standpoint, there would seem to be no way to stand against the legion. And yet Jesus stands there with all assurance, all confidence, all authority. And they're the ones begging 
to not be tormented. Jesus has all authority. They beg him to allow them to enter the herd of pigs that were nearby. They feared being confined to the abyss, which speaks of the abode of death. And so as these unclean spirits came out of the man, they entered the unclean animals and they raced down the steep bank to their death, plunging themselves into the Sea of Galilee and drowning. What we see here is a visual reminder that the enemy always comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who did those pigs belong to? They were unclean animals, not fit for a Jewish man, but they were owned by somebody. 2,000 pigs is a lot of money. Somebody or some group was out a lot of money that day, and the demons of hell took all of that from them. And we need to understand and be reminded that when the enemy comes to play in your life, he comes to play for keeps. And he's going to steal, he's going to kill, and he's going to destroy everything he possibly can in your life, in your relationships, among your testimony. It's also a visual demonstration of God's judgment on the demonic. There are many scholars who believe the pigs became the vehicle of judgment for these demons. And so as they plunged themselves into the Sea of Galilee, the demons were plunged into the abyss to await final judgment. These demons, or these are not demons, these scholars believe that these pigs transported the demons into the, the Sea of Galilee, which in essence was transferring them into the abyss so that they're now awaiting, confined until the final judgment to be thrown into the lake of fire. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me. The point of the passage is not to tell us where the demons went after this. So they could have left those pigs' bodies and traveled to torment other people. We don't know. That's not the point here. But it very well could have been vehicles that transported them actually into the judgment of hell. This incredible event was witnessed by herdsmen. As you can imagine, they couldn't help but tell everyone there they knew about what had happened. And so the news of the herds and the news of the healing of this man spread like wildfire. And people came to see it and they found everything to be true. Everything that they had heard was absolutely true. And yet in all of that, we see it at least two times. Luke tells us that the people feared Jesus. What did they do? Jesus what you've done in this man's life is miraculous. We can't even explain how a man who had many demons and we all were just, I mean, we wouldn't even let our kids look at him from afar, and yet he's sitting here clothed and in his right man. Jesus, we are mesmerized by that, but we, you need to leave. I, I, I struggle with that part of this story. Why is it that they asked him to leave? And yet that's what Luke tells us they did. That's what they did. But the man who is demon-possessed and now in his right mind wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus wouldn't allow him. He prevented him from going, but instead tells the man, no, you're not going to go with me. I've got another plan for you. I want you to go into the city. I want you to go to your family. I want you to go to your friends. I want you to tell everything that God's done in your life. I want you to share the news that you've heard, the news of how you've been transformed. I want you to share how, how you've been changed. I want you to tell that story and the story about me with everyone else. And so this demon-possessed man was ravaged by evil, but everything in his life that had been tainted by sin was changed when he met Jesus Christ. He was a man unclean and unfit for God. He was a man who was a scourge uh, to everyone in his life, and yet Jesus changed him. Today, Jesus will change us. Today, we may not, and hopefully we are not, demon-possessed. But here's what I know. Every one of us is influenced by the demonic on some level. And, and if you're not, which I think would be um, a farce, but, but if you're not influenced by the demonic, you are influenced by your own sinful nature. And so all of us have an evil influence in our lives. And so we may not be demon-possessed and need to be, uh, have an exorcism taking place in our life, but we do need Jesus to step in and change us. If you've never met Jesus, Lord and Savior, that's the greatest need in your life. It's to meet him and understand that he and he alone can forgive you and cleanse you of all sin. As a follower of Jesus, this morning, as I was reading in Colossians 3, where it tells us the things we're to put off in our life and the things we're to put on, that was a reminder that I'm not yet there as a Christian. 
that, that I'm not yet sinless and perfect in how, everything that I do and how I live my life. There's still this war as I'm trying to put off them ungodly, immoral things in my life and to put on new things. So I need Jesus to help me do that. So this is a message for all of us. We need Jesus to change us in salvation. And as a believer, we need Jesus to continue through the gospel to change us in our sanctification. So with that said, and i got some time left. I'm doing good. I want to share with you three truths about the Lord and then share with you three, uh, three things, three responses by the one who has been changed. Things that we see in this man's Life. The first truth about the Lord I see in this text that I want you to see is this. Jesus alone pursues the person steeped in sin. Jesus alone pursues the person steeped in sin. Satan's goal is to isolate and attack even as he whispers sweet temptations in the ear of the sinner. Now, when I say Satan, I'm speaking of more of uh, the demonic host. I don't think Satan is one person. He's not omnipresent. He's not like God, right? So he's not everywhere at once. He doesn't know all things. And so when I say Satan, I'm speaking of his system. He's got a really good system. And so he's got a lot of demons that do his bidding. And so I don't think that Satan's probably whispering anything into our ears. We're probably not that important in his economy. But he does have his own little minions that do his work. And so they are constantly whispering temptations in our ears, taking the, own, the, the natural fleshly tendencies and, and trying to feed that so that we walk away and we rebel against the Lord. And so as he's whispering those things in our ears, he also turns it around and heaps on condemnation. John Stott, the great Scottish preacher, offers clarity on Satan tactics. Listen to what he says. He says, Satan, when tempting someone, says that sin isn't very bad. He says that it isn't very big and it isn't very important. But after the person has yielded to temptation and sin and has begun to think about asking God's forgiveness, then Satan reverses his field. To his victim, Satan then declares that sin is so big, sin is so bad, and sin is so awful that asking forgiveness will hardly suffice. Jesus would never forgive you now. Jesus would never uh, steep down and, and take someone so wor worthless as you and forgive you. Such was the case for this demoniac. I want you to think about something with me. Here we're reading a, a story, a passage, a, an event that took place in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, where a man has many demons, legion of demons within him. How did he get to that point? Text doesn't tell us. But i got a sanctified imagination about when I think about this. You see, when we get caught in sin, and it gets to a point where it's really destructive in our life, we don't just wake up and that's the part of our life. No, it starts somewhere, and it typically starts small. And so I believe that this man, this demoniac, at some point in his life, back in the day, listened to the voice of the accuser, and it began to move him. You see, the word accuser is in the Hebrew, Satan, Satan. It, it speaks of one who accuses. It speaks of an adversary. Uh, this, is, this word is derived from a verb that means to obstruct or to oppose. We have this word, this term, this name in the New Testament because the Hebrew is translated into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then that word, that Greek term, is moved over and used by Luke and other gospel writers in the New Testament. And it is a fitting name for the evil one. He is an accuser. And so this demoniac at some point chose to listen to the accuser and further open himself up to the demonic influence. Little by little, he said yes to every temptation. I don't understand how demon possession happens or when demon possession happens. I don't know how many times you have to say yes to a temptation and no to the things of God to, for that to happen. But it is a reality. Now, for the believer, it cannot ever happen. You're possessed with the Holy Spirit. God is living within you, but you can be oppressed, not possessed. You can be influenced by the demonic. And it happens, and it takes place as we say yes to the accuser, Satan himself, and his minions who are leading us down a destructive path. I wonder how many times we've thought that one simple choice would lead us 
down such a destructive road. I wonder if this demoniac at this point in his life, and he's miserable. He's absolutely miserable. I wonder if he ever thought years before that that simple choice of saying yes to sin and no to God would bring him to this point, but I doubt he ever did because we never do. And yet that's what happens. I love what Ravi Zacharias used to say. He said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, if you know Ravi Zacharias' story, unfortunately, you know he didn't heed his own advice. Sin destroyed him, or at least his testimony, after he passed. The demoniac was isolated. The demoniac was alone. He he was scary and a wild man. He was troubled and hurting. This was a mess of a man. Nobody wanted to be near him, not even the godless people living around the garrisons. I mean, he's he's in a pagan land, and the pagans wanted nothing to do with this demonic individual. And yet there was one person who was concerned about him. You see, Jesus alone pursues the man steeped in sin. We read last week, we looked at that passage where Jesus went to his disciples and says, boys, let's get in the boat and cross over. It never tells us why they're crossing over until you get to this passage. They went through the storm. Part of the reason they're crossing over is so Jesus could teach them about faith. Jesus could teach them about suffering. Jesus could teach them about how he is enough when they're going through the trials of life. But ultimately, Jesus had his eyes and his affection on one man. Who was that? It was a man possessed by many demons. He's on the other side of the lake. And the first person to come to meet Jesus, guess who it is? It's the crazy wild man possessed by many demons. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus was thinking about this man. Jesus told another sinner about his heart and mission for people. In Luke chapter 19, he says to Zacchaeus, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why was Jesus in the boat with his disciples to cross the sea? It's because he was seeking the lost man on the other side. He's there to seek the demoniac who needed an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus pursues him who is steeped in sin. And today, he is pursuing all of us who are ourselves steeped in sin. It may not feel like you're, or you may feel like you're drowning in your sin. It may feel like you're without hope. This man surely would have felt like that. But the truth is, apart from Jesus Christ, you are without hope. You are, as Paul says, dead in trespasses and sin. This is the reality of your life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, tell us that. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Man, if you just read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that is a hopeless set of verses. But it gets really good in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. Then he goes on to talk about what Jesus has done for us. He gives us the gospel message. You see, Jesus is the one who is pursuing the person steeped in sin. And so there's no hope for us to grab onto in this world, in this broken system. All is lost, but there is hope from the one who transcends this world. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the one who pursues the person who is steeped in sin. There's a second truth. Jesus alone possesses all power over the forces of evil. When this legion of demons saw Jesus, they recognized him and they recognized his authority. You see that there in verse 28. There was no doubt about it. In fact, as we read this story, I believe it's important to acknowledge that there is not the slightest hint of good versus evil. There's no contrast here of who's going to win this battle. Is this this Superman against Lex Luthor? That's a, not Lex Luthor, that's a wrestler, right? Same thing. They're all wrestling and Luthor. You know what I'm talking about. I need to watch more wrestling. It's just got so crazy. I used to like it. It's just nuts these days. So mine goes back to the old guys. There is no battle of good versus evil when it comes to Jesus. You see, the forces of evil never stood a chance. Many scholars, when you're reading uh, this passage or maybe some others like it, uh, they will talk about and I mean, even point to that when the demoniac comes up and, and says, Jesus, son of the most high God... That's not so much an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. It's an attempt to take control over Jesus. There was this false and mystic uh, idea that when you call someone's name, you could actually exercise authority over that individual. Now, that, that's, 
That, that's crazy, right? I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I don't see that sort of stuff in the scripture. It might have and probably was a, an understanding or a belief system back then. But as I read this text and how it plays itself out, I do not think that the demon-possessed man is coming up and trying to take control over Jesus. I think there's a clear acknowledgement that, Jesus, you are the son of the Most High God. How do I know that? He says, I beg you, do not torment me. That's an acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's an acknowledgement of the authority of Jesus Christ. That's an acknowledgement of there is a day coming of judgment over me. But in grace may it not be today. That's kind of what they're saying here. And so there is not a good versus evil. There's only good destroying evil in this situation. They feared the coming judgment and being cast into the abyss. So everyone in this man's life feared him. He was a mess. They were disgusted by his lifestyle. He was a pariah. They wanted to get under control. In fact, verse 29 tells us parenthetically that they did try to get him under control. Many times they had bound him, maybe with ropes or twine, shackles even. And what happens every single time he breaks loose. And so humans could not control this man, but who did? Jesus. And so we see here, Jesus alone possesses all power over the forces of evil. He, he just speaks a word, and the forces of evil obey. The third truth I want you to see is that Jesus alone patches up the person broken by sin. This demoniac lived among the tombs. He lived away from the people, largely because sin had driven him mad. Sin had driven him into isolation. That's what sin does. Sin will drive you mad. I don't mean this to be, and this is not even the notes, this is free for free this morning. You've already given the offering, so it's free, right? Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about mental health these days, and I don't want to disparage mental health at all. As a clinical diagnosis, and I understand there's certain ramifications there, but could it be that when we walk in rebellion and we suppress the truth, Romans 1, it could and does lead us down a dangerous path that we can explain medically, but it's really more of a spiritual issue in our life? Food for thought? Food for thought? That's where this man is. He lived away because no one was able to help and heal his brokenness. You see, back in his day, there were no uh, treatment centers among the Decapolis, the cities around there to heal his mind and heart. I, I say that with the, the treatment centers that we have today in mind. Now, obviously, they were not available back then, but he did have spiritual help. Maybe he could have went to a guru, could have went to a shaman, he could have went to some sort of religious leader. Those were available. We don't know if he ever visited some sort of spiritual leader. We don't know if he ever considered some sort of religion. I'm not endorsing or not endorsing religion. Religion has its purpose. Part of the Christian faith is, in essence, a religion, but it's more than that. Here's what I do know about religion. It has no power in and of itself to transform or heal someone broken by sin. You can sit in church all day, every single day. You can worship till your heart is just merry and bright. But if you never come to Jesus Christ, the sin in your life can never be broken. So that's where this man was, broken. But when he encountered Jesus that day on the hillside, his life changed. You see, he went from being a wild and frazzled man who had demons, verse 27, to a man free from all demonic influence, verse 35, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. Praise God for clothes and in his right mind. And today, the same is true of every person steeped in and broken by sin. See, when Jesus comes into that person's life, he patches up everything broken by sin. Now, it's not always instantaneous, right? Positionally, it is instantaneous. Practically, it works itself out over your life. But now you're on the trajectory to pursue and recover all that sin has broken in your life. That's even how we try to teach you to share the gospel. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see in this demoniac story that Jesus alone patches up the broken person. He was transformed by Jesus. 
This is evident not because the demons had left. Here's what I want you to see. It's evident that Jesus passed the things up in his life because of what he did, how he responded. There are other times in life, in fact, Jesus even talks about this, that, that when the demons leave or when the demon is cast out, if you don't replace that in your life with something, that void, then they come back and it's worse. It's a worse state than before. And so we know that Jesus passed this, this broken man's life up because of how he responded. Let me give you those three ways he responded this morning, and we will do this quickly, and we'll be out by uh, 1.30 or so. Number one, you see, when we respond as a changed individual, there's a desire to be with Jesus. The man, listen to this, went from, what have you to do with me, Jesus, to, Jesus, can I go with you? Don't let that miss you. Don't let that pass you by. Jesus gets to the shore, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The man runs to where Jesus is and says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And now he's, he's naked, he's frazzled, he's, he's a mess. Now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus and he's begging to go with him. A desire to be with Jesus. You know, it reminds me of another story. In Luke chapter 10, we're going to get there in a you know, few months. Mary and Martha are friends of Jesus, and Jesus has come to their home. And Mary is out in the, I don't know, the living room, and she's with Jesus and with others, and she's sitting at his feet. Mary, or Martha, her sister, is a busybody. She's a good busybody. She, she wants to be a good host, and she comes out there and fusses at Jesus and says, make her, make her get up and help me. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better. James Taylor version. Mary's chosen to set up my feet. Mary has decided that to be in my presence and to be with me is more important than being busy about doing things. That's not a, a, a disclaimer to not do stuff, but it is a, an acclamation for us to be intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she, Mary, and this demoniac here who's been healed of his demons are pursuing intimacy with the Lord Jesus. If your life has been transformed by Christ, you too will have a desire, a, a deep desire to be with the Lord. You will want to know him in his word. You will want to know him in prayer. And you will want to know him among his people. There is a desire to be with Jesus. Secondly, a second response is a devotion to obey Jesus. You see, when the man was told to go and declare how much God has done for you, rather than being able or, or being um, able to travel Jesus and being disgruntled about not being able to go, what does he do? He obeys. It would have been easy for him to be disgruntled. Many times we get disgruntled for less than that. But this man, rather than fussing, kicking his feet, goodness, Jesus, I just wanted to go with you. He says, yes, Lord. And he goes and shares. He tells everyone all that God has done for him. He obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you and I, if we've been transformed by Jesus, there is a desire to be devoted to obeying the Lord's call and his plans for our lives. We will not live them out perfectly. Listen to that. But there will be an overarching devotion to obedience to the Lord. We can't say we love God and not obey his commandments. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. There's a third response we see by the one who has changed. There's a dedication to share Jesus. When the man went home as Jesus commanded, what does he do? <clears throat> he shared a story of redemption. He told his family, I, I, I can envision him there. He, he, I don't know how long he's been a, a demon-possessed man, but he, he remembered all of the friends he used to have. And he said, man, I, I want you to come over. They've heard the story already. So he gathers his friends, he gathers his families. I don't know if they did it in one setting or if it's multiple settings, but he gathered all those people and he went throughout the town and the other towns. And Mark tells us he goes throughout the Decapolis, the 10 cities in that area, and he told every single one of them his story. I was broken in sin. Jesus healed me. No one would want anything to do with me. Jesus pursued me. No one loved me, no one cared about me, no one tried to help me, no one wanted to have anything to do with me, but Jesus was there. He told his story of redemption, but he didn't just tell a story about himself, he told what Jesus did there. Not just being uh, freed of demons, but how Jesus had changed every aspect of his life. He shared the gospel with people. 
So if you've been transformed by Jesus, you too will want to talk about Jesus with others. You will be dedicated to sharing the gospel. Unfortunately, back in 2011, when I saw a man chained to the tree on the backside of a church, how would you feel if you rolled up on a Sunday morning and we got a guy chained to the power pole back here? I'd raise a little eyebrows, right? What's going on there, Pastor? Ah, guy didn't tithe last week. Well, we got stocks coming. They ordered them from Amazon. They'll be here this coming week. Until then, we got him chained to the tree. We don't roll like that. Perked my curiosity that day. A guy in Barara, Uganda, chained to a tree on the backside of a church. I have no idea what happened to him. I can only hope that those believers there in that sub-Saharan African church shared the gospel and called him to repentance and faith. I hope that because that's the only hope for him. Our brothers and sisters in that particular church are a little too charismatic for my comfort, and so I fear that they just tried to perform some exorcism type of action to him and, and might not have gotten down to the gospel. I don't want to be uh, um, accusatory in that, but that's kind of what I fear, but I hope that someone shared the gospel with him because that's the only hope for his life. And today, that's the only hope for each, and of, each one of us. So for those of you who have never turned from your sins and turned to Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it clear that you are spiritually dead and cut off from God. That's what I quoted from Ephesians 2 earlier. You're cut off from the God who created you. You're under the just condemnation for your sin. It is a judgment that will culminate in you spending an eternity in a place called hell. That's the same judgment that those demons feared. It's not a place that was created for you and I. It's a place that was created for the fallen angels who went with Satan in the rebellion. But that's the destiny of every single one of us who are dead in trespasses and sins. But it does not have to be the destination of any of us. You see, as Jesus pursued this demoniac, he pursues each and every one of us. And so I hope you will see that Jesus loves and pursues you in your sin. I hope you will see that he alone possesses power to break the bonds of sin in your life. And I hope you will see that Jesus alone can and he wants to patch up the broken spaces that sin has created in your life. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, there's not a greater need in your life than that. As beautiful as this gospel story is, there's something disturbing in it. I don't know if you caught it. But in verse 37, when the people came to see Jesus and all that he had done for this man, what did they do? Out of fear, they asked Jesus to leave. Jesus, it's amazing, but you got to go. Jesus, the message that that I'm hearing is, is, is mind-boggling. It's soul-stirring, but Jesus, you've got to go. I don't know why this happened. Perhaps some were offended by the loss of the pigs and the condemnation they might have felt since pigs were unclean, and maybe these were Jewish people, and, and just the idea that here's a, a rabbi, and, and he's, he's obviously from God. Something miraculous has happened, and so they see the own, their own sinfulness, and rather than being drawn to the light, they want the darkness to cover their sin because they're ashamed of it. And so rather than dealing with that sin with Jesus, they say, Jesus... Please go. Please go. Jesus never forces himself on any of us. Never. There's always a choice. We say, well, Abraham and Genesis, uh, he didn't have a choice. No, he had a choice. He believed God. Paul would tell us he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Right? He believed God. Jesus doesn't force himself upon us. And so what does the text tell us? Luke tells us that he returned. He departed and returned to the other side. Today, Jesus offers each of us an invitation to receive him. And if you will accept that invitation, he will transform your life. If you refuse and ask him to leave, what will he do? He will leave. Now, God is a gracious God, and he will bug the daylights out of you for a long time. But little by little... Your ears will become calloused so that you don't even hear the drawing he's sending, the, the calling, the wooing. But little by little, he will stop pursuing you. 
to stop pursuing you. And so this morning, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, I hope you can hear his voice. I hope you will respond in faith and repentance. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're walking in sin today, I hope you'll understand this. There's some things you need to put off, and there's some things you need to put on, and Jesus wants to continue to change your life. What does that mean? You need to reach out and say, Jesus, I'm struggling in this area. I need your help. I can't do it on my own. In fact, I don't even want to do it on my own. Because my sin keeps welling up within me and it keeps leading me back in there. So I don't even have the desire to walk away from this sin. Even though I know I should walk away from this sin, I need help in this situation. God, help me. Two things I want to just lay before you this morning. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, like this demoniac, receive him by faith. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and maybe there's sin in your life you need to walk out of, trust him to help you do that this morning. So let's stand to our feet. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song. The steps are here open. This is like an altar. We're not very good at using this. I don't say that to kind of smack you upside the head at all. I just, we need to get better at this. We need to get better at responding to the word of God and the spirit of God that's leading us in our life. And so if there's a hesitancy on your part of, man, I, I, I just don't know, put that out. Whose voice is that, Right? I don't think the Spirit of God would ever say, you know what, you need to be hesitant about the sin in your life. No, he says, drag that sucker out into the light and let the light shine on it, right? So whatever the Lord would put on your heart today, you do. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the words you've given us. We trust that your Spirit is, is speaking. We would pray this morning that our ears would be open, our heart would be receptive. God, that we would be in tune, in sync with the Spirit of God and the Word of God this morning. God, we pray that everything that you've shed your light upon, we would respond to. If that's meaning a person, a man, a, a woman, a, a teenager, maybe even a child this morning that needs to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, may that be our response in faith and repentance. Lord, I pray for believers that, as we often say, are walking into guilty distance. Lord, that we would be willing to say, this is the thing that's besetting in my life. This is the thing that's troubling me. This is the thing that's weighing me down. This is the thing that's destroying my walk with Jesus. God, may we bring that before you. Confess, repent of it, and be done with it. Help us this morning. Change our lives, because when we encounter you, that is exactly what happens. May it take place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. And let's... We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.